0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, an update on the Tucson Unified School District's debate over expanding sex education. Where is the monsoon? An update from the National Weather Service in Tucson. Has the so-called stupid motorist law made a difference in flash flood safety? And how special collections at the University of Arizona library is helping to preserve family histories. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. On Tuesday evening, the Tucson Unified School District Board was set to hold a vote on whether to expand sex education for fourth grade and beyond, a plan that has inspired strong reactions among parents, educators, and students. AZPM education reporter Duncan Moon attended the meeting. So tell me, Duncan, was it a different atmosphere than usual?
1: Well, I'd say absolutely. Although they've all been full to this point, and people have spoken with passion Um, sometimes bordering on anger. But um, they've been under control. And this was under control. But at one point during the meeting, there were so many people in the courtyard outside, and they were so loud, uh, the word came into the board that a fistfight was about to break out. And so they threatened to shut down the proceedings, unless people behaved. So they stopped for a few minutes and started back up in their Although it was loud out there, we could hear them inside chanting.
0: Well, the vote has been delayed. I know that's increased some people's frustration. But the public comment period was supposed to be over. Did the board take any comments from the public at Tuesday's meeting?
1: They did. Because it was a regular meeting, there's a call to the the public that would be at, at any board meeting. Maybe two people talked about a different subject, but most everyone talked about this. And they actually expanded it to try and make sure that everyone got a chance to speak. So it was within that context rather than another sex education public comment period. Well, following that segment, was the vote actually taken? The vote was not taken. At the end, um, they came back and each board member made some comments about it. But first, uh, Superintendent Trujillo said, I'm going to suggest that we not do this tonight. And I want to put some conditional Um, applications in here that we can do over the next few months that will bring this uh, to a stronger position. Um, And in the end, that's what they decided to do. And there was no vote.
0: Well, when you say months, that sounds to me like it's going to be a while before the TUSD decides to actually take a vote or to face this issue again.
1: One of the board members, Dr. Mark Stegman, said at one point, you know, we started this in February and it was going to be done for this year. Um, that was unrealistic. We put stress on ourselves. We tried to push too hard, too fast. Um, we didn't get all the I's dotted and the T's crossed, so maybe it makes good sense to do this. Um, for one thing, he said staff hasn't even seen this yet, so they haven't had feedback, much less had you know the sort of training that they will need to, to take on this new task, especially under such controversy. One of the
0: things that they tried to make clear heading into this was that the new sex education classes are going to be opt-in only. Students will have to fill out paperwork, will have to have parental or guardian approval to even get into the class. However, that's apparently not enough for some parents. And uh, tell me about some of the reactions we're hearing from the Latino community in Tucson regarding these plans.
1: Well, they were very clear um, almost to every speaker uh, as far as uh, Hispanic Latino um, uh, community members. This, we find this objectionable. We find that it is against our culture. We will train our own children. The opt-in is not really opt-in because they're going to hear from the other kids who are in the class on the school bus or in the, in the halls. And so we don't have a choice. They're going to be tainted by this anyway. But they said it really wasn't. If opt-in was to make it inclusive, it was not inclusive for them. They really did not want uh, this to be taught in the schools.
0: You referred to Superintendent Trujillo's idea to add some conditions to the program. Any idea what form those will take?
1: Yes, he laid out half a dozen things um, that he said would be conditional, that he could come back to the board once these were accomplished. And uh, having done that, that the program would be, be ready to, uh, to be implemented into the schools. He wanted to have teach-ins, which means parents will come with their kids and they'll see the curriculum being taught. In front of them and they can make a real decision about whether this is objectionable or not. Two, he wanted some serious training for leaders within the in the uh, teaching community, those who would be leading these programs, to have gone through a very comprehensive training about how to teach it and how to um, work with teachers to make sure that they were teaching exactly what it was, not adding their own political and religious beliefs. And that they were clear on on the curriculum. He also said we're going to add in more opportunities to teach abstinence. A state law says abstinence has to be in there, and it has to be the most important. It has to be the only thing that is guaranteed to prevent unwanted pregnancies or sexually transmitted diseases. Um, so it's going to be added to a life decisions uh, program, and and so he's going to add five more um, classes that will include uh, that in it. But they haven't changed any of the language and that gender neutral language that was there for LGBTQ students, um, as well as that medically sound, research driven uh, information that was being added to the curriculum, um, that all remains.
0: Well, we started this conversation with me asking you about the atmosphere at the beginning of the meeting. What was it like at the end?
1: Well, there were fewer people there at the end. At one point in the middle of the meeting, they broke away from this and they went on to some other general business about budgets. Some people left at that point. Um, So it wasn't as packed at the end. But because they were backing off, it seemed to relieve the stress in the room. Um, They weren't saying we're not going to do this. We're going to work on this some more over the next few months, perhaps through the end of the year and see what we can come up with. So it relieved the tension. It relieved that you know, explosive pressure that this is the night the decision is going to be made. The decision wasn't made. So it sort of petered out at the end.
0: All right. Well, thank you. Our listeners can keep up with all of the reporting regarding this subject at news.azpm.org. This time of year, it's common for Tucsonans to spend at least a little of their workday dreaming that the clouds will roll in and that they'll get to watch the rain drench our dry city streets. Or maybe that's just in our newsroom. This week, Emma Gibson spoke with Ken Drews, a meteorologist for the National Weather Service in Tucson, about any remaining hopes for this year's monsoon.
2: Monsoon is really the season that we have when we get a good portion of our yearly rainfall, and it's really based on a seasonal change in direction of the winds that allows that moisture to come up uh, into our area during our the season we've defined as a monsoon from June 15th to September 30th when we get you know a lot of uh, thunderstorms and, and rainfall.
3: And is that happening this season?
2: We had kind of a wet and cool spring and we really need to have kind of the heat building as the seasons progress and we get into summer to have that, that high pressure shift northward. Um, so because of the the cool and wetter spring, it was somewhat delayed. And that again, that delayed our, our onset of our, our moisture into you know, kind of the latter part of July before we really got into the, some decent moisture.
3: And in Tucson, what does the monsoon usually look like? How much rain or precipitation do we get?
2: On well, Tucson, we, we average just over six inches of rainfall during that, that June 15th through September 30th period. That's our, our average. We're looking at a period of record from 1895 through the present day.
3: And this year, how are we measuring up?
2: Well, we're, we're woefully behind right now. We're just shy of three inches so far for the season. At this point in the monsoon in um, early September, we're at the 21st driest thus far. If we project that out through the end of September and we didn't get another drop of rain, we would end up as the 12th driest monsoon on record. Um, hopefully we'll, we'll turn that around and at least get a little bit more so we uh, move further down that list
4: what are some of the
3: repercussions for you know if we were the, in the 12th driest monsoon what could happen
2: well we've we've already seen uh drought starting to creep back because you know when we started the monsoon basically arizona was virtually drought free by looking at, at the drought monitor and since then we've had some moderate drought creep back into uh, northern portions of arizona
3: and you mentioned the u.s drought monitor and how it is focusing more on short-term drought can you kind of talk about the difference between short-term drought versus long-term drought
2: yeah there's several ways to, to measure drought of course you know we are in the desert so we're kind of perpetually in a long-term drought situation but you know short-term did pretty well last monsoon and then again during our cool season we did pretty well so we had kind of alleviated a short-term drought as i mentioned at the you know at the beginning of the monsoon but now with Having a a dry monsoon, it's uh, a little drought will creep back in very quickly as far as short-term. You know, we have had, we've been a little spoiled for our monsoons. Really, the last four monsoons in Tucson have been above average for rainfall. And then the one before that was actually right on the exact average. So, it would be our first uh, below-average monsoon since uh, 2013. If we end up a little normal this year, which it looks like we will for this monsoon, we'd need a tremendous amount of rain to catch up.
3: And how is climate change going to affect the monsoon season in southern Arizona?
2: Yeah, I think it's hard to say. You know, we've been getting warmer, you know, warm summers and warm years. And like I said, you know, we had five monsoons in a row where we've been above average in Tucson for rainfall. So it's kind of hard to say. You might think that that would make it drier if it's going to be warmer. So we kind of got to see how that plays out.
3: Let's zoom out a little bit. What does that look like statewide?
2: Really statewide, it's, it's been generally below normal everywhere. Really in uh, southeast Arizona, we've actually fared the best, believe it or not, because a lot of areas like in Cochise and Santa Cruz County have been only 60 to 80 percent of normal, whereas areas farther north have been you know, much more below normal. Uh, I think Phoenix right now is, if they don't get any more rain, it's going to be the second driest monsoon for them.
3: And were there any past monsoons where those surprise rainstorms kind of crept in and we went from being a really dry monsoon to being a wetter monsoon?
2: Yeah, actually um, 2011 was was one of those where in early September we were really about in the same spot we are now as far as rainfall, about the same amount. And then over the course of a, a week in the middle part of the month we ended up getting five inches of rainfall and it ended up being the 10th wettest monsoon on record in 2011.
3: So what I'm hearing, or at least what I'm hoping I'm hearing, is there's a possibility we could get some more rain?
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's a possibility for more rain or whether we're going to get that much rain. And We'd need a little bit over three inches for Tucson to get to normal for the monsoon. So we're most likely going to end up drier than normal, but there's still a chance of getting at least uh, uh, more rainfall yet in September, even though September is usually the driest out of the three main monsoon months. But there's still hope that we could get, get some additional rainfall.
0: Emma Gibson spoke with Ken Drews, the Warning Coordination Meteorologist at the National Weather Service in Tucson. This year's rainy season may have jokingly been called a nonsoon, but when the rains come, they can still be dangerous. Every year, dozens of drivers in Pima County get stuck in deep water when they ignore signs that tell them not to enter flooded areas. But as Christopher Conover reports, they're unlikely to be subject to Arizona's stupid motorist law.
5: Turn around. Don't drown.
6: Jessica Nolte is a spokesperson for the Tucson Fire Department, and her message here is especially applicable during the monsoon or really any major rainstorm in southern Arizona. Yet plenty of people still try and drive across flooded washes and through flooded roadways. According to data from Tucson Fire, the Golder Ranch Fire District, Rural Metro, and the Northwest Fire District, firefighters responded to more than 250 calls for people who were stranded or needed a rescue from flowing waterways between 2015 and 2018. So why, despite the warnings, do people still drive into water
7: and get stuck? The human capacity to evaluate risk is very questionable proposition
6: dr ole teenhouse is a psychiatry professor at the university of arizona
7: if we were constantly aware of the risks we probably wouldn't get out of bed in the morning okay so we're primed to think of risk as something that we can handle
6: the rescues conducted by tucson fire and other departments fall into that category People often getting stuck in places they know will flood.
5: Going back and looking through the call data, you would think like, okay, there are some known trouble spots in town. And there are some areas where you just imagine the water is going to puddle and pond and start to run. But regardless of where we are in the season, we even had swift water rescue out of the monsoon season. We had one back in February when we had all of that heavy rainfall and all of that water was draining off the Catalinas into all the channels in town. And... Went into the Rieto, and somebody thought they could make it across the Rieto with flow there. So, it's it it doesn't. It's a common feature during the monsoon, but it certainly isn't limited to the monsoon, and. It's tough to say is it early in the season that people finally catch up or is it, you know, later in the season? It's it, it's kind of a mix. And, and plus we have visitors in town. Not everybody is from town, so they don't know what, to, you know, don't know how to approach it.
6: And it's not just where washes cross roads.
5: Some of those city intersections also can get inundated. Our storms are known to drop even an inch, maybe even more than that in a very short period of time and the drains just can't keep up.
6: And that happens quickly. Let's go back to the rescue statistics. For the four years spanning 2015 through 2018, there were about 250 rescues. On most days with rescues, the fire department did one or two. A few days there were five to ten, but August 9, 2016, was an outlier. That day there were 54 rescues, including two in one location. The remnants of a tropical storm swept across the area. Nolte with Tucson Fire says fire departments train for those rescues, but still,
5: it is a very dangerous situation. Depending on the 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 position of where the the individual or individuals you know are in their vehicle, are they out of their vehicle? What are the conditions going on in that that wash channel, that drainage channel, and then understanding okay something caused this. This could be a storm that's upstream. This could be a storm that's still active on top of us right now.
7: The
6: city of Tucson and Pima County put up signs closing flooded roads and warning drivers to stay out of flooded areas. The University of Arizona's Dr. Teenhouse explains why those signs don't always stop people.
7: We see something that uh, warns us, but following the warning would create an inconvenience. I mean, I have myself sat at those streams and wondered whether they were really serious. And then you see some, you know, SUV go through and eventually you might think, well, you know, it's probably, they always exaggerate and so forth. It doesn't apply to me and bang, there you go. He says
6: people use past experience as a guide for making decisions, especially those involving
7: risk. The fact that everybody's personality style falls along a different point in terms of risk aversion versus risk-taking behavior, uh, predestined some people more likely to be more likely to, to, to do foolish things.
6: When drivers ignore the risk of a flooded road or wash and drive around signs that tell them not to enter the area, they're not only taking personal risk, they're violating the law. Arizona passed what is commonly known as the Stupid Motorist Law in 1995. It says that if a driver goes around a sign, warning of flood risk, gets stuck and has to be rescued, that person can be charged for the rescue, a bill that could be thousands of dollars. But the data from the four major fire departments in the Tucson metro area shows it's rarely enforced.
5: For a large department such as ours, second largest in the state, we have that budget. We have that technical training. We, we kind of absorb that cost just into our daily operations.
6: The stupid motorist violation is a misdemeanor. The Pima County Attorney's Office says it has no records of the law being enforced in at least four years. Tucson Police Department records show one ticket in the last four years for violating the stupid motorist law. Officials with the Pima County Sheriff's Department said they also have no records of these tickets. That's because if citations are issued in a flood rescue situation, they're more often written for reckless driving or even child endangerment if there are kids in the car.
5: These are certainly preventable, say for those really rare cases where it may be that giant wall of water that's coming down the wash, but if if you live in town, you know where those areas are.
6: Monsoon officially ends on September 30th, but rain any time of year can cause a flooded roadway. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover.
0: You can visit our website to see an interactive map of all the stranding incidents and swiftwater rescues in Pima County over the last few years, including the radar loop from August 9, 2016, the day when there were more than 50 rescues. There are so many details about life that will never be found in a history book. Preserving these small, personal moments and the materials needed for in-depth research is the mission of Special Collections at the University of Arizona. It contains more than 1,500 individual collections, each consisting of as many as 300 boxes of documents, photos, and artifacts. Special Collections is holding Family and Community Archives Day on October 5th, a free event with talks and activities designed to encourage Tucsonans, especially those from underrepresented communities, to preserve their stories.
4: My name is Veronica Reyes-Escudero. I'm the new Catherine B. Willock Head of Special Collections, and we are currently in the basement of Special Collections. You're getting the -the behind-the-scenes look at where our archival collections are. This one that I wanted to show you is the De La Torre family papers. It's a great illustration of of what a family holds as an archive. Um, And I wanted to show you some photographs from the collection. So here we're looking at one of the boxes, the call number is MS420, and I'm gonna pull box six, box number six, and that's where we have photographs.
0: Do you know why it is that you have a collection based on the papers of the De La Torre family?
4: I was the Borderlands curator before being selected as the head for special collections. So I actually worked with the family for two years. A colleague of mine met this person, his name was Rafael, and he said that he had material from the Mexican Revolution. And so the more we talked, um, what I realized was that um, the majority of the papers that he had in his family were around the Cristero uh, the movement, um, which was, in, in Mexico, uh, Catholics were being persecuted between the 20s and 30s. And so this family had a lot to do with bringing it up to the north, to Nogales, Arizona. There were several brothers, it was all brothers, and then one sister, Maria and Maria was the actual, in a sense, the archivist of the family. She kept everything. And so Rafael, being her son, after her death, started to figure out what to do with his um, family's papers.
0: When you gain access to something like this and you become a preservation partner with this amazing living history, what's foremost on your mind in terms of your responsibility?
4: Uh, One is preservation for long-term use, and that second part is access. If we don't Provide access to materials like this, particularly those of communities that are underrepresented, then we cannot forge new areas of research. The responsibility to the family is so important. You know, it it for me, it generally takes an average of about two years um, to develop a relationship with with families, and I want them to feel um, that they can trust the institution and so that they can feel secure and assured that their material is going to be here for a long time and be available for people to do research on them, students, scholars, um, the community. Um, and so that's, that's super important to us.
0: In terms of this particular collection, what does it consist of? What would someone find? Is it mostly documents?
4: A lot of it is photographs. Um, we have negatives as well. Uh, we have a lot of correspondence. And Along with the collection came uh, a set of books, some of those which were um, underground um, publications because when they were being persecuted, they were exiled to the U.S., so they were part of that period of sending out um, pamphlets uh, about the movement. There's a map in the collection that shows how many priests were in each state, and that's a really interesting document, for instance. In this case, because the family was, um, lived along the border, it tells you just daily life of a family that lived in Oráles, And so you can see that this is a family at the turn of the century, living their life, being entrepreneurs, being priests, and corresponding with with one another. So here are the photos of the family, the De La Torre family. And so here are all the siblings, and it tells you in the back who they are. So it's Maria, who I mentioned before, Ignacio, Francisco, Alfonso, Luis, Edmundo y Carlos. And then here's Maria, who I mentioned, and she's the one that kept everything. It's wonderful to have somebody like that who is very conscious of history and conscientious of the necessity of these kinds of materials.
0: If someone living in Tucson is in a situation where maybe an elder relative has passed away and they've come into possession of these things, do you have any advice? What, mm-hmm. what would you encourage them to do?
4: Keep it in a dry, cool place. But I would also, you know, really start thinking about what they're going to do once they, once they themselves pass on um, or if they're going to keep it at home. Um, this is the perfect opportunity for you to come to, this, to the event because we're going to talk about how to keep their materials at home. But eventually, you know, start thinking about repositories that you feel um, comfortable with, Um, start meeting the archivists in the repositories, we're here, we're open. We can consult with you on on either how to keep it at home or what might happen if they decide to donate their materials to an institution like ours. That's one of the things that we're trying to do with the event is to talk about the necessity for these kinds of materials, particularly for underrepresented communities. Because what we're realizing is that the voices of those that have been underrepresented, in many aspects, not just in archives, um, have voices that can enrich our history. We're going to have Professor Anita said Hernandez talk about how she uses um, archives to um, teach um, her students and the use of primary sources. And the other thing is that we're going to have our community archives partners like the Mexican-American Museum at the Sosa Carrillo House, the Dunbar Pavilion and African-American Arts and Culture Center, and the Arizona Queer Archives. We'll have representatives um, on hand so people can talk with them about their repositories, people can learn about their repositories. And, so, and then we'll have um, Professor Lydia Otero on loop, on video, talking about her work in um, public history and oral history, and the importance of oral histories. And then the other thing is that, you know, if you bring 10, ten pieces, we'll digitize them for you. They'll go away with um, a thumb drive with their digital copies as well as their original, of course. Some people do decide to donate materials, and we'll be ready for that as well if they, if they decide to do that.
0: Now, what kind of materials can be digitized?
4: So what we're looking for this time are uh, flat surface materials, like posters um, that are less than 11 by 17, photographs. Letters, people have brought in um, birth certificates from their gran- great grandparents. Um, so, those kinds of things pamphlets, um, church newsletters, club newsletters, you know, so those kinds of things. So, that's what we call flat surface paper material.
0: Veronica Reyes Escudero is the director of University of Arizona Special Collections, located next door to the UA Main Library. Family and Community Archives Day is Saturday, October 5th. You can see some photos and get more information on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.